Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Friday evening where we have the opportunity this fifth Sunday in ordinary time to reflect upon the Gospel of Mark and its opening chapter. Here we are for a fifth week in the first chapter of Mark. And it's, it's really interesting because the Gospel of Mark, as I noted last week, is really a fast-paced narrative. But... When you just get seven, eight, nine verses from one Sunday to the next, you might miss it. Although there are clues there, huh? What did we talk about last week in the word immediately? We, we see that word immediately 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. So a fast-paced narrative, but one that slows down for us so we can take in the richness of uh, the shortest gospel of the four gospels, huh? Uh, only 16 chapters. Uh, Mark wants to make his point and move on. And it's interesting. This is the fifth Sunday in ordinary time. And yeah, the fifth week we're in the first chapter. We will still be in the first chapter next week. So we will be in the first chapter for six weeks. But that's the richness to the gospel of Mark. I mean, we look at Matthew and Luke and John, these longer gospels, and we tell ourselves, well, I mean, these. These Gospels have so much more than Mark. Well, we have to be careful. Certainly, uh, there is a richness to those Gospels as well. But as the Catechism reminds us, we speak of it in the context of a fourfold Gospel, because in the four Gospels, we have the fullness of what God wants us to see in the life of Christ, right? Uh, The four endpoints to His divine compass— so it is, we spend the time we do with one of those endpoints, huh, being the Gospel of Mark. And is it not rich with a deeper understanding of who Christ is in his humanity and at the same time divinity? These are the overarching themes and how we are called to be followers of his way of doing things. Last week, we talked about the importance of the way. Uh, what is the Greek word for way but odas? right? You hear that word, odos, and you might think of exodos. And it is right we think exodos, because for Mark, it's not about the way out of a political domination, but a way out from our concupiscent appetite, our inclination to sin. This is why the Baptist prepared the way in his baptism of repentance, in his baptism that was a call for a deeper contrition and a deeper resolve, because if we were to receive the grace of God and the grace of Christ, then we first must understand the importance of a contrite heart. He prepared the way, the exodus out from sin. Okay, and so here we are in the first chapter of Mark, taking up another narrative where there's more encounters, uh, there's more exorcisms, and there is a withdrawing of uh, Christ into prayer. So let us go ahead and read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 to 39. And immediately Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever, and immediately they told him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she served them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered together about the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him followed him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is searching for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Okay, so what can we say about this narrative? Well, as I've already touched upon, that all-important word immediately, there is this sense of urgency in what our Lord is doing. And immediately Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, in regards to Simon's mother-in-law, she lay sick with a fever, and after the fever left her, she served them. So she has this encounter with Jesus Christ, and out from that encounter, she immediately wants to serve. Have we not seen this before? All throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see this encounter with Christ and at once desire to be with him, to serve him, to talk about him, to preach, to proclaim him. This is what happens when we have a very real, deep, personal encounter with Jesus Christ. This is what happens when we call upon the Holy Spirit each and every day, we immediately rise and seek to serve. So this is very important, and certainly Mark wants us to see this. Peter's mother-in-law. And how important is it that Jesus enters into the home and there's healing? We must invite Jesus into our homes, huh? We must allow Jesus into all of those places and into all of those relationships that he might heal them, that he might exercise demons. This is why, by the way, it is so important for us to invite priests into our homes and to pray in the rooms. Because in doing so, what are you doing? Yeah, you are exercising, but also inviting Jesus into that place where you spend the most time, huh? Why not? Why not? Invite Jesus into your home. What are other ways we can invite Jesus into our home? How about the reading of the sacred text? Each and every day, read the Word of God. Allow the Word of God to penetrate and bring to life every aspect of what you do inside your home. I would also encourage sacramentals, the hanging up of of maybe important saints on your walls. I mean, if you think about it, do we not hang up those who are closest to us, those loved ones, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, to remind us of who we are? How about our spiritual family? those spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ who have shown us the better way, the way of Christ, the road less traveled. Hang them up. Be reminded of the heroes of virtue. There are many ways to bring Jesus into our home. And certainly, 
This is a point not to be overlooked. All right. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered together about the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because what? They knew him. They knew him. I mean, what did we read last week? We know who you are. You are the Holy Son of God. He did not want this being talked about. And it it isn't an interesting footnote. I don't know if I talked about this last week, but we often say we need to just put Jesus on our lips and we will be saved. My dear friends, the demons put Jesus on their lips and are they saved? No. So we have to be careful about how we think about that. It is life, okay, that reflects who we believe in, right? Very important to, to think about this critically. So this whole talk of, of demons, I want to break this open a little bit, and we will do so with the catechism and uh, with sacred scripture. So what does the catechism have to say uh, about the devil and, and about demons? Well, the devil is a fallen angel who sinned against God by refusing to accept his reign. Satan or the devil one, the evil one, and the other demons were at first good angels, created naturally good, who became evil by their own doing. The uh, catechism goes on to talk about the importance of the free choice of the angels, and this is where evil began. So for more insight and understanding into what we're talking about here, let us turn to sacred scripture. If you were to go to Genesis 1-1 and verses 3-4, to what do we read? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now on this reading, there are some church fathers who make some very important points for us as they relate to understanding the angels. And so we turn to St. Augustine and St. Ambrose, who both insisted that the heavens and the light we read about in Genesis represent the realm of pure spirits. Huh? Physical light does not appear till several verses later on the fourth day. So God created these angels of light as he created everything to be what? Good. Yet he also created them to be free because only free creatures can experience love. Again, love cannot be coerced. Love cannot be imposed. You do not browbeat love or it ceases to be love. Love must come from within, not from without. So God presented the angels with a decision. And evidently, right, some of them chose not to return his love. The book of Revelation seems to allude to this event, though in symbolic language, when it says that a third of the stars of heaven were darkened and cast down. Now, for clarity, we do not know the nature of the angel's test. Scripture doesn't say what it was, and the church has made no definitive declaration on the matter. It's possible, too, that we could not even begin to understand the testing of pure spirits whose knowledge is so immediate and complete, and whose power far exceeds our own. We are only dealing with finite words, right? A finite language. So, in light of this, my friends, it is a subject that has fascinated many saints and theologians down the centuries. Many, 
in fact, have speculated that God infused all the angels with a foreknowledge of his incarnation. And this is what we're left with, speculative theology, but theology nonetheless that has uh, some seedlings, if you will. If you think about the incarnation and the significance of it, you know, Scott Hahn in his work, Joy to the World, reflects upon this, and he says, you know, he revealed to them that he would create human beings and that he would one day be united with humanity. God would become a man and all the angels would have to adore the incarnate word. The letter to the Hebrews tells us when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So he speculates, as others have, you know, some of the angels perhaps judged God's commandment to be unreasonable and we can even say insulting. So what do you have then? In their pride and arrogance, they refused to worship a being that appeared so grossly inferior, even though God himself had commanded such worship. Uh, one can speculate too. This is why there was such an explosion of angelic activity with the incarnation. We talked about that on Christmas Day and the Epiphany. We won't go there now. But it is important to pause and to reflect upon, uh, a little bit at least, uh, the origin of how we think about angels and, and demons. The point to be had here is, in the end, demons exist. The devil exists. And as a Christian, if you were to ever doubt that, all you have to do is go into the opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark wastes no time to show us the power and authority that Christ has over demons. He wants us to see the effect of Christ. Just not talking about a message, but one that reveals Christ actually being the message. He is the message incarnate, and that message has power, even power over demons. I mean, this is powerful stuff. I mean, this is the stuff we need to be thinking about, especially today, because in 2014, there's a tendency to water down evil. Uh, some would go so far as to say that the devil does not exist. Well, that leads to quite a slippery slope. You know, we have talked about this topic uh, on Wednesday evening a great deal, because Pope Francis, the topic for Wednesday evening, talks about the devil and evil all the time. It is striking, and certainly this is not something that the mainstream media is going to be talking about, is going to be reporting, but my goodness, from one uh, day to the next and one week to the next, are we hearing about uh, the ways of the adversary, the tempter, Satan, the devil? I mean, there is a certain urgency to his message. In fact, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day, and our, our conversation moved towards a kind of comparison between uh, the urgency of Pope Francis and his message, and how Mark is drawing out Christ's message in his gospel. I'm obviously not comparing uh, Pope Francis's word to divine revelation, but simply saying that there are similarities uh, in the urgency and the focus, and the focus on the adversary, the devil. Uh, Pope Francis wants us to be thinking about it. Certainly, the gospel of Mark wants us thinking about it, and we think about it so as to be reminded of the power of Jesus Christ over the devil, okay? The devil is working in our world today. That's not rocket science. And if you don't believe that, you have to look in the mirror and ask the question, why? Is that just a defense mechanism? That's between you and God. We need to look at the reality of sin. 
We are all sinners. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the kingdom of God, but we are better than our worst. We are better than our worst, and we are called to enter into the dynamism, ah, the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, and allow him as king to reign in our hearts, that he indeed might work in our lives and all those who we come into contact with. This is what's going on in the early stages of the Gospel of Mark. It's his power that extracts all of the sin that we might enter more deeply into a relationship with him. Amen to that. Anyhow, we go on looking at these verses. And in the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place, and there he prayed. How important is that? So we see him exercising his power, exercising his authority, and then he withdraws. Okay, And he's constantly doing this throughout the Gospels. He's constantly withdrawing. And in so doing, what is he teaching us? He is teaching us that primary truth as it relates to who we are in mission, right? The relationship between prayer and ministry, that on one level to neglect prayer is to neglect ministry, because on the deeper level, everything that we do must yield to the interior life, huh? Because it is out from the interior life that what we do begins to make sense, a point that we have talked about a great deal. And what I love about this, we read, And Simon and those who were with him followed him. The importance of staying behind Jesus, following Jesus. This was an image we talked about in our discussion on the Baptist. Because when John the Baptist was talking about a baptism of repentance, he was talking about a new way, a new direction. One that has us constantly behind Jesus. So they followed him and they found him. And where did they find him? In prayer. So where are we going to find Jesus? But in prayer. And now what's very important and often overlooked are these next series of verses. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He is showing us concretely what our preaching, what our evangelization, what our catechesis must be rooted in that time in silence, that time in prayer, that if we are going to be effective in our preaching, if we are going to be effective in sharing an authority of Christ, then we must first be rooted in prayer. A point, my dear friends, that I simply cannot overstate. It is so foundational to everything that we stand for as Christians, because when the dust settles, the genius of Christianity is sonship for souls. Huh? our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and how it forms and informs all of those who we come into contact with. And I love this line when he says, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Right? Christ does not dwell on his successes. He doesn't look back and pat himself on the shoulder and say, Well, what a good job I did. No, he's constantly looking at the next thing, the next task. You know, there is a most fascinating truth when you have been deeply touched by God, when you have experienced an authentic renewal. And, and it comes with this renewal within the Holy Spirit. Is that the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the church fathers used to talk about the Holy Spirit within the context of this divine energy. It would just send this charge through you, and in that charge you would have this new singular focus. And what would happen is the more good things you do, 
the more good things you will want to do. So there would be no reason to to stop and look at the one good thing you, you did because you see all of the many other good things that need to be done. And these good things you want to do, you never stop doing them because this is the divine energy that lives within you. Okay, so Jesus Christ, out from his prayer, is simply saying, there is still so much more yet to be done. And it is something that just comes through him. It's his very essence, it's his very being. Remember, what he reveals is the essence of the Trinity, which is love. And love seeks nothing but other, constantly looking for new ways to will the good of the other. Huh? You know, I was, uh, I was asked about three weeks ago, you know, Joe, how did the likes of a St. Augustine and, and St. Thomas Aquinas and maybe in a contemporary context, Fulton Sheen, how did they write so much? How were they so prolific? I mean, G.K. Chesterton, how much did he write? Volumes and volumes and volumes. My goodness. How did they accumulate so much material? Well, A, <laughs> there were fewer distractions, and for whatever distractions there were, they did not get caught up in those distractions. But they understood well what Jesus Christ was talking about here. What is the next task? They would finish one, okay, job well done. Let us move on to the next one, because there's more work to be done. Mother Teresa would talk about this a great deal. There's more souls to save. When Jesus says we must go into the next town, he is telling all of us we must move on to the next calling. We must discern and move on to the next task that God has before us. I think there is a tendency today to maybe uh, pat ourselves on the shoulder a little bit. In today's culture, there's just a tendency to look back and to reflect upon the good that we've accomplished. We're not discerning the present so as to understand better what God wants us to do in the future, right? We're constantly looking back, and we need to break free from that, that tension, right? Yes, if it's looking back to learn from your mistakes, or if it's looking back to see how God has worked in your life so as to appreciate who you are and where you're going, that's necessary. That's necessary. But what I'm talking about here is the looking back that stalls the will of God in your life, okay? Seek the will of God, ask God what he wants from you, and enter into that task. And when that task is done, move on to the next one. Discern the next task. And when that task is done, move on to the next one. There is plenty of work to be done in the vineyard. There is plenty of work to be done for the body of Christ. And, you know, my friends, there's something else in this verse that we ought to appreciate. He goes into the next town out from prayer, and does he offer for us some sort of systematic program on evangelization and catechesis? No! He just simply preaches, evangelizes, teaches, and this is what draws people to truth. Now, certainly we can say, uh, in many regards, that uh, a good program of evangelization and catechesis is needed today. But what we must always keep in mind is what Jesus is showing us right here, that the light that comes out of prayer, the holiness that is the light that comes out of prayer, is once again essential to the task of what we say and what we do, because it's that which draws them in. Okay, by way of uh, closing reflection, I wanted to draw a little bit from 
one Cardinal Schoenborn, I was reading him a little bit this afternoon, and it was really interesting. He, he got into some of the archaeological findings that we have in the place where Jesus Christ uh, was in today's gospel, just not um, the home of Peter's mother-in-law, but also in the greater area of Capernaum, and how in some uh, recent archaeological excavations uh, we have found these places. And, you know, he makes the point, we ought to uh, pull back and really appreciate the historical significance of these findings, and at the same time, really reflect with what these findings mean, okay? There's a tendency to look at sacred scripture as not a historical book, and I have said as much. The Bible is not a history book, yet within it, certainly it contains a great deal of history, to the least of which is the person of Jesus Christ entering into human history and revealing how history has moved towards salvation in Him, and how we share in this mission of salvation in and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, but the significance of history is really important, and as Cardinal Schoenborn notes, <laughs> Jesus Christ was a very real person. All of these places that we read about in sacred scripture are actual places. They are really there, and they speak about a person who lived 2,000 years ago. And when we reflect upon this, wow! I mean, if I were to ask you the question, what if everything sacred scripture recorded is actually true? What if there was a man who entered into human history and his name was Jesus Christ? And he did proclaim a message of salvation, a message of good news. What if? What does that mean for you, well, brothers and sisters in Christ? <laughs> One Cardinal Schoenborn makes this point and really asks all of us to reflect upon this. Because there was a man who entered into human history 2,000 years ago to reveal to us who we are called to be and how we are called to enter into the transformation of history by entering into his very life and love so that we can transform those who shape history. Something to think about. And maybe if we have the means, we might make a trip to <laughs> Galilee, Capernaum. I know some of these places are war-ravaged areas, and we might not think about going to the Holy Land these days. But uh, there are trips available, and if you do have the means, I might encourage you to go to actually read the gospel in the place where Christ actually proclaimed the gospel? If you want the Word of God to come to life within you, man, oh man, I tell you what, that's powerful stuff. So, my dear friends, as we reflect with the gospel reading today, I do leave you with uh, that overarching truth as it relates to what lies at the heart of our faith, that this person, Jesus Christ, He is real. He walked this earth to show us the new way, the new exodus. And in doing so, we are called to appreciate this great historical truth and at the same time appreciate the greater faith element within it so that we might be followers of the way. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. 
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.